Good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, uh, Miliband uh, lecture uh, this evening. I'll introduce myself quickly. My name is Professor Michael Cox. <laughs> I'm in the Department of International Relations and also happen to be uh, a co-director of a Center for Strategy and Diplomacy here called uh, Ideas. Uh, it's wonderful to be here uh, this evening. It's also one of the nice things, I think, one of the great things about being at the London School of Economics, where I've been for the last few years, is the sheer energy and enthusiasm of the place and its commitment to, to public debate. So committed is the LSE to public debate, I went through the program this evening. We've only got seven public lectures today and only five at the same time going on at this one. So I think it's a remarkable turnout that we have so many people. And if you want to go and watch German unification or something else, there's somewhere else going on. But it does say a lot about this, it does say a lot about this school, I think. Uh, both, both the energy and, I think, this commitment. There's nothing more important in that public debate, the issue of equality and inequality, more so, I, I would say, than ever, making the cliché point, in the midst of this, of this particular current and deep and profound crisis. And I'm delighted to welcome here this evening two people who are going to reflect on that. Uh, Polly Toynbee, the Guardian columnist and broadcaster and president of the Social Policy Association, formerly the BBC's Social Affairs, editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, etc., etc., etc. She won the National Press Award and has been what the papers say, columnist of the year. She's the author of the many books and is a co-author, and Polly wanted me to hold it up tonight, <laughs> Unjust Rewards, Ending the Greed that is Bankrupt in Britain, now in a new, second revised paperback, an extraordinarily cheap edition. <laughs> um, so that's the best plug I can give this evening, Polly. And uh, the, other, the other author and the other speaker this evening is David Walker, a writer, broadcaster, and journalist who edits public, the monthly magazine published by The Guardian for senior public sector executives, who was formerly also chief leader writer uh, of The Independent. Uh, with no more ado, I'm going to welcome Polly and David here to the LSE this evening. You're more than welcome uh, to speak to the, to the issue, Unjust Rewards, Exposing Greed, and inequality in Britain today. Polly and David said they're going to stand up here together if they can manage that uh, somehow or another, but I'll leave that over to them. So I'd like you to give them an LSE welcome here. Polly. Well, in the very short time, just a matter of months since our book was published, its argument really has been vindicated. And we try not to say that um, with any smirking pride. I know I told you so is it's not very popular on the whole. But it really does seem that um, excess rewards, failure of corporate governance, government complacency about escalating inequality, these are now exposed about to be amongst the causes of the crash. Inequality is dysfunctional. Growing inequality is one reason why capitalism has been almost brought to its knees. As it is now, RBS, Sir Fred Goodwin's bank of debt, larger than, a debt larger than all of UK GDP, has turned into the popular sim symbol of out-of-control greed. And it's quite extraordinary to hear politicians of all parties and newspapers, even of the right, angrily baying for the blood of the masters of the universe, who only such a short time ago were being lavished with uh, admiration as our great wealth creators. But that's um, just our pack press and the mindless mob of media commentators. Goodwin is, um, is only one amongst many. And it's not just bankers who've walked off with huge amounts, despite a public record of, of corporate failure. 
There are others from the RBS stable, including Sir James Crosby, whose pot is worth uh, £10.4 million. They're all riding off into the sunset with multi-million pound pension pots built up during their years when their decisions were now been proved to be inept, ineffective and destructive. Megalomania was led to RBS's crazed acquisitions policy, fueled by the prospect of bonus and additional payment, unchecked either by vigilant boards nor subject to effective taxation. The story was that outlandish pay and bonuses were a means to create wealth, but now that's all been blown away. Anyone who brought an ISA, for instance, in 1997, will find that it's increased in value not a jot since then, and a mattress would have produced as much profit as savings in a bank. Um, financial sector earnings expanded in the eight years to 2008 at double the median earnings in the economy at large, but hard to calculate since values have been falling so fast, the gross value added of the sector at best has been no more than the median, and they paid themselves twice what they were worth. It seems quite extraordinary that a Labour government has failed to correct the explosion in inequality that happened in the 1980s, and instead it's presided over an era when equality has grown a bit more, fueled by top pay soaring away as the top 10% took nearly a third of all income, and the top 1% took the lion's share of that. One of the lower estimates of, of what happened uh, in the last 20 years comes from the Institute of Directors, hardly left-wingers, and they report that 20 years ago, the FTSE 100 CEOs earned some 17 times the pay of their average worker. But in that 20 years, it rose to, 20, to, to 75 times in that short time. Despite Labour's very good anti-poverty programs and despite lifting 600,000 children out of poverty, mainly through tax credits, inequality still rose. The UK is still the most unequal country in the developed world in terms of income distribution, closer to the USA. So it's one of the most unequal, closer to the USA than to the rest of Europe. Recent ONS figures show that people in the middle haven't done well in recent years. GDP rose, but in the last few years, 80% of people saw very little real increase. The bottom half saw none, the bottom third actually fell back. The only winners were in the top 10% and mostly in the top 1%. And that's the trouble with GDP and other aggregates as a measure of general success. When the government praised that era as an unprecedented era of unbroken growth, who uh, was asking exactly whose incomes were growing and how that growth was shared? The tyranny of averages disguised who were the winners and who were the losers. And yet, in that time, particularly in recent years, there's been a growing undertow, a, a scratchiness in, in public opinion that suggests that most people don't feel that they were living in a golden age, uh, even if the figures seem to keep telling them that they were. And I think that helped to fuel, fuel a growing political discontent as voters uh, increasingly distrust all statistics. Hand over to David. What's uh, so extraordinary, uh, we feel in retrospect at least, is how much of our destiny we abandoned to groups of people in the finance sector who turned out to have been so inadequate. Some of you might feel a motive of uh, sympathy for these uh, beleaguered bankers as their uh, world crumbles around them. You should have come with us 
when, a little while ago, we convened uh, focus groups of top bankers and lawyers in their pomp. <coughs> they certainly didn't make then um, uh, a spectacle of humility. We gratefully acknowledge, uh, in passing, if I may, the help of the Barrow Cadbury Trust and the Joseph Landry Foundation in making those focus groups possible, and the participation uh, in the groups of Professor John Hills of this parish. Um, bankers, we thought, might challenge our figures uh, for income and rewards, but we figured were unlikely to challenge John. Uh, methods uh, and so on are uh, detailed in the book itself. On our behalf, Ipsos Mori ran the focus groups, uh, as it turned out, uh, as the curves crested at the height of the boom in a meeting room in Canary Wharf, a uh, dozen or so people earning from half a million pounds a year upwards to five, sometimes ten million bonuses included. <coughs> what did these silverbacks of the city jungle know? What did they think about their and others' earnings? You guessed. Here were professionals of money, yet how very little they knew of others' finances. Sitting comfortably themselves in the top 1% of the earnings distribution, many of them in the top 0.1%, they claimed 6% of earners were better off than them. Uh, the earnings of £150,000 a year plus uh, that they had placed them, they seemed to imagine, below those actually earning £50,000 a year max. They wanted to compare themselves with an imagined richer society where they were a step or two down from the top. And their self-regard seemed to us veered into self-deception. We deserve it, they said uh, in the qualitative uh, analysis, because we work so hard. Yet, the annual survey of hours and employment, official measure, reports an average working week in financial services in recent years of some 34 hours, as compared to the 33.9 in the economy as a whole. In 2007, a high income by definition was £39,825, the sum it took to put an earner into the top 40% tax band. Some 90% of the UK's 32 million-odd taxpayers earned less than that, a fiscal fact our group found extraordinarily hard to believe. They overestimated by four times what it takes to enter that top 10% bracket of earners in the UK. They thought it was £162,000. Our lawyers and bankers were next asked what they saw as the poverty threshold, i.e. what it meant in money terms to be poor. They fixed it at £22,000 a year. But that sum at the time was just under gross median earnings, which meant the bankers regarded ordinary earnings as poverty pay. Now, we feel knowledge gaps such as that should disqualify the wealthy from pontificating about taxation or <laughs> redistribution. Here's a lesson, we feel, for news producers and pundits. Financial ignorance of that kind surely matters. Yet, city views such as those in the boom bubble years carried great weight with ministers and politicians of all parties, and indeed seem still to do so. Money men and women ostensibly speak with economic authority, 
yet their social opinions deserve no more regard than those you might pick up in the street, maybe even less. After John Hills had put up slides showing the right, correct figures uh, on the various measures we were asking about, one youngish banker said sheepishly, my appreciation of the numbers was quite hopeless. Given my age and my level of experience in the city, I wouldn't have thought I would be so out of touch with reality. Another went on to say, the goose that lays the golden egg, this was justification, is the people who come to London to make wealth. A sentiment echoed by a large number of those in the focus groups. How richly ironic uh, we can now say, as he was speaking, he and his colleagues were destroying wealth. Yet their self-belief at the time was consummate. The growing gap between rich and poor is, it was said to us, quote, a reflection of the success of policies here, as to say Canary Wharf, making the city one of the preeminent financial centers of the world. Within not much more than a year after that, the plaza beneath it would flock with redundant office staff ordered to leave their desks at a failing bank. Our focus groups put themselves inside a golden enclave on which the entire United Kingdom depended, they thought, for its well-being. Don't mess with its denizens was their clear political message. They deserve thanks. We deserve thanks, they said, for providing invisible exports and for powering GDP growth. One banker said... It's a fact of modern life that there is a disparity and is it fair or unfair isn't a valid question. It's just the way it is and you have to get on with it. So the question is what, what went wrong to allow these people to get so out of control and so beyond the reach of regulation or of ordinary everyday experience and did it matter? At the time most said it didn't. Certainly both Labour and Conservative leaderships were adamant that it didn't, and we talked to them both, them all, and uh, they kept on saying, no, no, that's something you don't have to, to touch. I used to talk about the camel train crossing the desert and the sheikhs at the front uh, galloping off into the distance. And they said, no, we're only worried about the ones at the, behind, the back being left behind. We're not worried about the ones at the front galloping away. Um, if pay and bonuses start to damage profitability, the shareholders will deal with it. That was the theory. That was their get-out. That was their explanation. Anything the shareholders would put up with uh, must be all right. It, it, that's what uh, J.K. Galbraith calls the popular illusion, though for a long time now very few have really been deluded by it. Despite a plethora of official reviews into company governance from Cadbury, Greenbury, Higgs, Miners, shareholders, that's most of us with pension funds, uh, are not effective at policing how companies behave. In the book, we visit a typical AGM. It happened to be cable and wireless. The Association of British Insurers and PERC, the uh, shareholder's watchdog, had issued really rather uncharacteristically stern warnings. They don't do it very often to shareholders to reject the board's proposed remuneration package. Richard Lapthorne, non-executive chair, was due to get £11 million. A reminder that exorbitant rewards were not confined just to the financial sector. The CEO was uh, due, due to get a £20 million bonus for hitting very easy targets, which duly they did hit. A handful of elderly shareholders were there to protest. They were genuine shareholders. They weren't political activists. Some of them protested vigorously. Uh, but the chair declared, with a sort of rather Cheshire cat grin, that he didn't feel fat cattish at all. And the vote went through, of course, without a hitch, as the unseen fund managers 
nodded it through. And that's always what happens. I've been to a number of others. I went to Debenhams the other day. Same thing happens. Remuneration consultants recommend level pegging with the top quartile in other companies, and that creates an automatic self-inflating mechanism. The Guardian measures uh, boardroom pay annually. Recent years, regularly, FTSE companies have been paying themselves, FTSE boards have been paying themselves between 20 and 30% rises every year, year on year. Now, is that the world we're going to return to? That's the question. When the economy picks up, shareholders don't and can't control earnings. In the uh, great return to sterner regulation we're prom that we're promised, regulation and taxation will have to be the only mechanisms that there are to prevent it all happening again. And don't imagine that the culture has changed or that there's very much pressure for it to change, uh, either in politics or in the world of, of, of companies, business and the cities. After all, Sir Philip Hampton, who's been brought in to take over at RBS, is on 750,000 with a 1.5 million bonus uh, in a part-time job. Uh, he also has a part-time job as chair of Sainsbury's for another large sum of money. So on the horizon so far, unless we make much more fuss about it, it doesn't sound as if there's much of an appetite for change. And so it goes on. Only this week uh, we've seen the Treasury agreeing a set of uh, bonuses for the bankers working for UK financial investments, the body overseeing taxpayers' interests in the quasi-nationalised banks. And don't please say incentives are needed because such bankers surely these days can't be, uh, need to be recruited or retained exactly where else we might ask would they work. The case for progressive taxation, we're talking about more progressive taxation, I suppose, than now rests on these pegs. If corporate control of high earnings has broken down, which I hope we've gone some way to demonstrating, only the state can rest it back by means of taxation. The goal is to secure more equality of income, to reduce the social space between earners and make a contribution to reducing status differentiation. A new book highly recommended uh, by the professor, Emeritus Professor of Social uh, Epidemiology at Nottingham University, Richard Wilkinson, called The Spirit Level, presents again the strong correlative evidence that inequality is dysfunctional. Countries that are more equal are happier, more trusting, more productive. Stress, obesity, crime, fear are all inversely connected to material inequality. Progressive taxation is to provide the funds that we need for social intervention. Uh, you can lift people out of poverty, by which the government has done mostly through tax credits, but also it's been doing it through social programs. Nobody would deny that causes of po poverty are multiple. And if you look at the trajectory of countries, particularly the Nordics, Netherlands, that have nearly uh, eliminated child poverty, They've done it through a combination of direct transfer of, e of more equal pay and through social programs. And I think it's in our book we look at some of the social programs that Labour has brought in with that in mind. And it shows the value of what taxation can do. Because one of the things that these bankers kept saying in our, in our uh, focus groups was, well, we know the government always wastes the money anyway. And they had a whole string of reasons why. I mean, taxation basically was theft as far as they were concerned, but also 
um, and it would destroy their, their industry, which they've destroyed very effectively themselves without paying much tax, but also that the government always wastes the money. We will always spend the money in our pocket better than the government ever can. So we looked at some of the schemes that really do seem to be making a difference, and I think it's very important to stress that they do for fear that in harder times ahead they may be the first things that get, start to get cut back. There is Sure Start, program for under fives, where all of the evidence now is that what happens to people before they ever get to primary school is what really makes the difference. And if you can catch children from birth at risk, in families at risk of failure and really support and help them, you can make all the difference. And Sure Start has been, uh, Sure Start Children's Centers, a fantastic uh, new weapon in the armory of trying to make sure that uh, disadvantaged children don't fall behind. There's extended schools. The idea, only realized in full in some places, but gradually rolling out, is that every school should become a wraparound service, bringing in social services, health, mental services, help for parents, whether it's looking for jobs, whether it's for extra training, that it really should be a community resource and really should look after children from breakfast, if necessary, right the way through to tea, to homework clubs, extra help and support. A lot of the things that some children take for granted, extra lessons for music, for dancing, for uh, sport, uh, drama, art, all of those things potentially can be given to all children through the extended schools program alongside uh, special services for people with particular problems. I think one of the most interesting pieces of research that we, that we quote, which shows how important the under fives are, some American research by Todd and Risley, in which they, did, uh, they recorded the conversations in families, three sets of families, in professional families, what they called working class families, which in our case would be more middle-middle, and welfare families. And they listened to children at the age of four how many words they had heard spoken to them. The professional child had 50 million words. Working, uh, the working class child, ten, um, sorry, uh, 100 million. The working class child, 50 million. And the uh, welfare child, only 12 million. Mm. When you compare the words of encouragement and discouragement between the groups, they also were hugely different, with the professional child having had an enormous amount of encouragement, the welfare child a huge amount of discouragement. And when they followed those through to the children through to the age of 10, that was a remarkable predictor of how well they were doing at 10, whether they could read and so on. It is very uphill work changing life chances, but it's not at all impossible. Uh, birth is destiny unless you intervene at a very early age, but it doesn't always have to be. And I think that's an important message because in a lot of the work on inequality, uh, it can look so dispiriting because unequal countries have on the whole had rather bad social programs that it can look as if, well, nothing can be done. And uh, the evidence is very much to the contrary. Uh, we seem to uh, come across a gap in the social science literature um, about the perceptions of inequality and wealth and how they might flow through into attitudes more widely distributed in society. So we took a brief look at the stretch, in a sense, between the extremes of, of rich uh, and poor and seemed to find the sense of inequity shared more widely and growing um, 
peaked by recent trends in earnings, growing among people who would conventionally be called middle class. In the book, we call it the discreet anxiety of the bourgeoisie. Because they're amazingly found in the likes of Geordie Gregg, then the editor of Tatler, now moved into the orbit of the uh, Russian owner of the Union Standard, who said eloquently how displaced he felt by the excesses of finance capital that had washed into his neck of the woods, inflating property prices. He painted for us an affecting picture of an old Etonian walking the streets of Notting Hill, pressing his face against the glass of a restaurant he could no longer afford <laughs> to eat in. Exaggeration, surely, but a sign that runaway earnings are socially corrosive, tearing apart the basic trust on which ultimately market capitalism depends. This was illustrated for us also by a conversation we recorded in the book with the headmaster of the Purse School in Cambridge, who feared a new anomie among his privileged charges, that they would emerge into the world of work, headed perhaps then for banking and corporate law, many of them, motivated by nothing other than acquisitiveness. If, he said, if I gave a school assembly and talked about duty, I would struggle. I couldn't do it. The question is what can be done? A number of things. I think taxation comes at the top of the list. I think it's been quite extraordinary during this time of huge expansion of pay at the top that uh, nobody has dared suggest raising top tax rates. And we are still at the very bottom of the European League. I think only Luxembourg has uh, a, a lower or similar top tax rate. Most of Europe much higher. And over many years, that makes a big difference to the amount of money that's brought in and also to levels of equality and, and inequality. And finally, the Labour government has got round to saying, well, actually, we will increase it to forward from 40% to 45%, um, but only after the next election, um, with, with great trepidation. That's a very small rise, again, by, by, by European standards, um, and uh, much too late in the day. Labour probably won't still be there. Might even be one of the reasons why, since I think there's been growing indignation at the, uh, uh, at the soaring away of uh, undertaxed wealth at the top. And of course, a lot of it not actually paid through one means or another, legal or not. I think um, one thing that would be revolutionary would be transparency. What opinion polls show us time and again is how little people know about what other people earn and how surprised and indignant they are when they discover. And I think the fact that most people who are themselves in the top tax bracket, uh, and we've asked a lot of people, keep asking people, are astonished when they hear that the top tax bracket, uh, A, that there are only 10% of people in it, and that it starts at around 40,000 pounds. In other words, 90% of population earned under 40,000 pounds continues to come as a great shock to people. They're very unaware, particularly since the decline of trade unionism, I think, and public bargaining and, uh, and loud talk and politics of pay, which have very much disappeared from the news radar. They are, are very unaware of what people earn, very unaware of what's, what's ordinary, what's poor and what's rich. And I think transparency, I think if uh, tax returns were public documents in the same sense that wills are, I think it would change the culture and there'd be far more talk about who's got what and who paid what, who paid what tax when, and who earns what. 
uh, and it happens in, 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 in some other countries, Nordic countries mostly. Uh, and I think after the shock, it's like sort of everybody decided to go nudist all of a sudden. After the initial shock, people would get used to it. <laughs> At the moment, I think, uh, you know, the, it, it's the great taboo. It's probably regarded as worse than nudism. But uh, I think it would be a great help. I think there is um, a possibility, or at least an opportunity, whether it will happen or not, I don't know, for changing the culture, for changing the ethos, for bringing back some sense of shame. Uh, you know, Sir Frank Goodwin didn't come out of nowhere, and he's not alone. There is a whole culture there where there is no sense of shame, whatever, about absolutely unwarranted huge sums of money. Um, I think there could be shame about the taxes that corporations pay, instead of which they keep demanding lower and lower corporation tax in a kind of race to the bottom, which I think Europe should be doing something about. The Guardian's recent series, I don't know if any, any of you uh, read it, was an absolutely shocking eye-opener. A third of the FTSE 100 companies paid no tax whatever because they get round it in one way or another. They do it legally. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's... Uh, allowed to happen through various loopholes. Uh, we have a government that's you know, notoriously failed to rein in any of the tax havens that Britain's responsible for. Britain's responsible for more tax havens than any other country. Interestingly enough, and Gordon Brown spoke in the uh, Congress yesterday, I don't know if anybody watched the whole thing, he got several standing ovations for being nice about American things, but the only spontaneous whoop of applause actually came when he said, and now we must close down tax havens. But of course he never said any of that until Obama got into power, nor did he promise to raise the top tax rate until two weeks after Obama had come into power, had come to power um, promising the same thing. Perhaps bravery and daring is catching, and perhaps uh, it'll spread around the world a little bit, some of that uh, Obama idea of what is and isn't proper. The other thing that's very important is uh, fairer pay. The last two years, and it's very good that Labour brought in a minimum wage, made a lot of difference to a lot of people, particularly women's pay at the very bottom. Uh, but the minimum wage has been frozen for two years running, uh, which were two of the very good years, uh, for no very good reason. The minimum wage needs to keep rising above inflation until it reaches a living wage standard. Uh, London does have a, a living wage brought in by Ken Livingston, kept up by uh, Boris Johnson, I'm glad to say. Many cities in America uh, have implemented a living wage. There is something ridiculous about the taxpayer having to subsidize low-paying employers because families can't survive, so they have to be paid tax credits. Uh, raising the minimum wage would actually reduce the burden on the state. Uh, and I think that as we have a low pay commission, we should rename it the pay commission and it should look at top pay too. It can start off as an advisory. It can start off with guidelines suggesting what would be reasonable for shareholders to accept and not accept and where in certain sectors and at certain times shareholders <coughs> should get very activist and should protest vigorously and refuse to give their support for remuneration packages that are excessive. Uh, if if that doesn't work, if, we've got, if they've got beyond shame, then I think we should consider compulsion, but that's further down the line. All of these recommendations that we've made are really very modest and very moderate. You can hardly call it Marxism. Yet even these seem extraordinarily radical in the times that we've uh, been living in in the last decade. 
where all the parties seemed to gather together on a smaller and smaller bit of the centre ground, and none of them dared step even a little bit outside. Off the record, most people in Labour, Lib Dems, and even some Conservatives would say, yes, we are worried about the growing inequality. But when it came to actually suggesting any of these really rather modest proposals, uh, they all panicked and said, no, no, it would be electoral death. Uh, I think it may turn out to be the other way around. Mr. Whitehead. I suppose we hope and believe the public respond to functional uh, as well as moral arguments, reducing crime and antisocial behaviour and increasing fairness <coughs> going together. Talking up the good that tax credits do, targeted as they are on poorer families, and how well families spend it. Talking up Sure Start and good parenting programs. Again, I hope not naively, uh, observations that might possibly be made by uh, uh, government from the centre right, uh, as well as one from the centre left. To those, of course, who think all that impossible, um, the question has to be, and this question for the likes of Ian Duncan Smith on the right, if none of those measures to reduce inequality, what can be done sustainably about a social rupture recognized across the political spectrum, either in language of breakdown or simply as unfairness? We believe within a generation or two this country could throw off dysfunctional inequality and elevating social discontent become a fairer, less angry place. Other countries have moved impressively down this path. Few of them have staved off the full consequences of recession, that's true. But the recession, as observed elsewhere in Europe and certainly in the Nordic countries, looks to be much less potentially socially damaging than it could be here. Here, however, the case for equality, fairness, has unfortunately been allowed to go by default. There really could be no more poor children than destined to fail from their first breath because of the family they were born to if society were fairer and the measure exists to accomplish that. The affluent boys that we saw at the Perth School and the poor children we visited in a number of programs Polly mentioned earlier could enter life's starting gate closer together. Are the, uh, we have somebody over here with a microphone. Okay, I, I just start, I'd like to start off just with a little story I read this morning in the, I think it was this morning, Polly and David, in the, in the Financial Times by Lucy Kellaway, I think, who uh, writes very amusingly. And it was a kind of letter to Lucy, kind of um, a bit of advice, and that some, some chap had written into her saying, look, I've just been offered this wonderful uh, voluntary package, redundancy package, should I take it? And uh, she replied, for goodness sake, don't do it. You'll never get another job. There's none out there. And then the next thing she said, which I thought kind of related partly to what was said to Steve, she said, for God's sake, you might end up in the public sector. <laughs> um, and I do think, firstly, maybe I could just get my first question in and then maybe a second point and uh, throw it over to you and, and then start it. Is it not the case that the, part of the thing you're talking about is also about devaluation of the public sector? in terms of the image of the public sector, people who work in the public sector. You know, we're now in a situation where people from layman's are now applying for jobs in the public sector and they suddenly realize how much people in the public sector actually earn. And I do think some part of this 
is this constant devaluation of people who work in the public sector, dare I even say at the LSE. The other thing you mentioned um, about Gordon Brown, I won't make the normal uh, jokes about Gordon Brown, but he was in the United States yesterday, and I read the speech, and it's a great celebration of the United States. Now, that's fine because America has some wonderful characteristics. We don't, I don't share this kind of normal anti-American uh, hysteria. Um, but it does seem to me that the models he's worked on, the image he has of the good society has been the United States, which is not surprisingly also combined with pretty strong and profound pessimism and skepticism about Europe. So two questions I want to start the debate off with, maybe either you or David can reply. One, isn't part of the solution the revaluation of the public sector, revaluation of people who work in the public sector, not a devaluation, and will that happen in the context of this crisis? And secondly, don't we have really to rethink our relationship with the United States, at least ideologically, and part of the argument for Europe isn't just about the Euro, it isn't just about becoming part of Europe and joining with France and Germany, it is also thinking about a different kind of social model. I think that's, I think that's a very good point. I think the public sector, though, is under huge uh, pressure now because given that uh, most of our, our newspapers, 80% of them are, are owned uh, by right-wing owners who wish to uh, bring in the conservative government, one of the weapons that they use is that Labour has wasted all of this money on the public sector. Uh, all of the money that's, well, where's the money gone? It's all been wasted. It's true that most of it is, a lot of the programmes that we've seen is invisible to most people. You've got to go out and look and find and ask. You're not necessarily going to see unless you happen to be somebody who works in that sector or you have a child who goes to your local children's centre. A, a large numbers of the best things done are not uh, necessarily visible to the general public and I think that Labour has been very bad at selling the best that it's done. It's been very amb ambivalent about whether it wants to be seen as the party of great social progress, the party that made the great pledge about abolishing child poverty, which it very rarely talks about except when speaking at charity conferences or, or, or to people who are Labour Party people. When Gordon Brown went to the city, he never said to them, the great thing we're doing is abolishing child poverty. He never mentioned it to them. So that I think um, a lot of Labour's pro programmes uh, have spent quite a lot of money and it's been easy for the right to say, well, that's all money down the drain because we can't see it. But they've been very anxious to pick on, on any kind of uh, inefficiency in the health service or in schools or anything else and have given no credit whatever for the fact that hospitals and schools really do feel markedly different. And any set of figures you choose to look at, uh, it's been a great success. Uh, teaching, for instance, used to be um, about between 40th and 50th choice for graduates uh, before the crash, not mm -hmm. now. Uh, it has been, for the last eight years, consistently in the top one or two of choices, which is a remarkable change in the status, partly through paying teachers better, partly because schools are better equipped and more desirable places to be, and partly, I think, it has been a change in the ethos that the public sector is better respected, is a better place to work. Um, and the same true of hospitals. I've always thought the NHS depended on a waiting list as its only break, its only uh, rationing mechanism. It's quite extraordinary that waiting lists that used to be up to two years long, uh, ever since it was first launched, have now been reduced to virtually zero in a lot of places, and an average of, of, of sort of seven to eight weeks. Uh, 
and that seems to me phenomenal. That of course, you know, waiting lists have now disappeared off public concerns about the mm. NHS. They're worried about other things, and there's no gratitude in politics. And once something's been done, people are on to the next thing, and they forget how things were. And somebody waiting for a hit now wasn't waiting for a hit ten years ago. So there are different people who often can't make the same comparisons. Or somebody sending their child to a, a school now probably wasn't ten years ago. Mm. Can't see the, the the very visible difference in the atmosphere in school. I mean, you know, I was right. I was doing stories when I was at the BBC about you know kids sharing three to a book in 1970s catty old stacks of, of copies of Kez. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that really has changed, but there's been nobody to talk it up much. The Guardian does a bit, but we tend to whinge mm. as well. Mm. And um, I think that um, celebrating the public sector is uphill task. Mm. You ask most people in the street, and they can remember a story of waste, mm. of which, of course, there'll always be some. And they'll, send, they'll remember a story of failure. How do we get across uh, and celebrate the enormous good that the public sector does? Mm. I'll just add to that, if I may. I mean, clearly there are big issues about productivity and capacity and the trade-off between them uh, in the expansion, the public expansion in recent years. And, but it seems to be, again, perhaps specifically in this country, and I say this country meaning, I think, increasingly England rather than the rest of the UK, and certainly... Uh, differentiate the UK dialogue from the conversation you might hear in France or Germany. There's an exaggeration, there's a hyperbole about the public uh, sector and its, uh, as Polly says, its alleged uh, ills, which seems to have a lot to do perhaps with the, the nature of the Blairite project, but also, as Polly said, with the, the nature of media conversation. Just if I may add very, very recently, the public sector suddenly doesn't help itself. Now, you, Michael, sort of you know, mentioned the LSE implicitly as mm. part of the public sector. Mm. Go across the road here to King's, mm. where only a few months ago the principal explicitly said, no way should this university be regarded as part of the public sector. We are a private institution. And, you know, clearly the, the, the uh, financial economy of, of, of LSE has been changing in recent years and there's been movements of money mm. uh, uh, in terms of your student balance. Sure. Nonetheless, you have public purposes as an institution. However autonomous mm. this university might be uh, uh, in relationship to the, to the main body of the state. So I think sometimes the public sector doesn't help itself by allowing a perception of fragmentation and in a sense not, sell, as Polly said, not selling itself as energetically and enthusiastically as it might mm. uh, when the, the conversation takes place. Mm. Okay, fine. I've, I've got a number of hands that have gone up. Uh, there's a lady at the back there first, yeah, and then a gentleman over here at the back, yeah. If you could speak nice and clearly into the microphone. Maybe stand up as well, okay. gentlemen, just so we can hear you better. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm an alumna of the school, and um, I'll just start with quite a possibly a controversial comment, given where we are. But um, as an alumna, I was very surprised that a former chairman of the FSA was selected as a director of LSE. And I Nothing did to do with me, I have. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but I did wonder what um, the Fabians who originally founded the school would have thought of that. But um, I, I just wanted to ask um, uh, Polly and David whether they really think that um, it's actually possible, regardless of what party is in power, that the government really can um, extricate itself from this inextricable link with the city, given... Um, I mean, I think it, it, there was a very early indication, so I do 
find this hand-wringing a bit surprising in the press right back to 96-97 when Tony Blair was repealing Cause 4 um, about common ownership and things like that. It was very clear what, what New Labour's intentions were. And if you look at um, the way that campaigns are financed, you look at um, all of the lobbying, and you look at how many captains of industry make it into, you know, are rewarded by being given lordships and, you know, being conferred upon titles. You look at forums like Davos where, um, you know, corporate leaders are elevated almost on a par with statesmen. Um, is there really, is government really the mechanism that can control this, these forces that are shaping this inequality? Mm, thank thanks you very much. Maybe I'll well, it's plainly been difficult because Labour felt it came to power making that famous uh, bargain with the city and with business. And uh, the creation of new Labour in the run-up to 1997 depended on Mandelson and Mo Molum and others going off on the what they called the, the prawned cocktail charm offensive. I think it was more like um, uh, caviar, I think. But... Um, they went out to reassure the city and business that they would not lay a finger on them and that they would not raise top taxes. And I think only once they had sort of anchored that point did they feel safe themselves uh, that then they would be allowed to do other things. They'd be allowed to pursue social programs, they'd be allowed to increase public spending. Um, and that was the trade-off they made. In a sense, it was leave the rich alone and we'll be allowed to concentrate on the poor. And they sort of accepted that inequality was not what they were about. They were about trying to, and in a sense, technically, you could say, uh, in theory, you, can, uh, you could abolish poverty because poverty, although it's a relative measure, is relative to the median. And their view was always you could pull people at the bottom up to the middle. It would be a very odd-shaped society. There's never been one that looks like that. The only societies that have ever succeeded where they've been equal from top to bottom all the way through, where the ladder is short and, 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 and easy to climb up and down, uh, where it's long and steep, people don't. And so um, I think it was a misapprehension, but it was the best new Labour deal, new Labour thought they could get. Then I think they kind of fell in love with it because, I mean, you could say Blair was seduced by money anyway, but leaving aside personal things, politically, Brown fell in love with it because he saw it as this incredible British success. And suddenly we had overtaken New York. We overtake Frankfurt in the beginning was, a, was still a threat. We knocked them out of the way. London still, FT is a big story today. Mm. You know, London is still number one by 13 points ahead of New York. Um, and so it became our great uh, glory. And they sort of forgot about what the content of it was or what else it was doing or indeed the danger of it. But that was the sort of deal with the devil that was done. We have a unique opportunity to change all that now. Uh, times could be different. We could do differently. Could I just, sorry, just say a brief word in defense mm. of uh, uh, Sir Howard Davies. I mean, he was a financial regulator, and surely one thing we really need at the moment is a great improvement in the quality of financial uh, regulation. There's nothing ignoble about the regulation of the financial sector. And if I, if I may just uh, add, I mean, this school has had uh, right-wing and indeed very reactionary directors in the past. I think I'm right to say the second director of the LSE, Halford McKinder, was uh, a well-known imperialist uh, mm. and a man whose views would not be accepted in the uh, salon of modern London. 
Yes, I think I better keep off the issue of Sir Howard Davis because he sits on my remuneration committee as well. There you go. <laughs> the gentleman here. Yeah, please. Uh, Polly, you, you did a very good article two Saturdays ago, hmm? and you've repeated some of that tonight. But you seem to be resigned to the fact that you can't change Gordon Brown's attitude to the city. Is that truly the case, and how would you set about doing it? Well, I think that's a very good political question. I mean, can there be enough of, a, um, of turmoil within the Labour Party to actually change what's going on at the top? I mean, you look at Harriet Harman even modestly suggesting something even slightly more mm. radical than the rest, and she's immediately, it's immediately regarded as a, as, as, as a splitter, as a gap, or she's some, some ludicrous bid for the leadership, which it plainly isn't. So I think it's, it's very difficult in the current climate when you've got a party that's in deep trouble already, uh, for anybody to dare to say we're going in the wrong direction. But if the cabinet uh, doesn't, if they don't speak out, I mean, at least half the cabinet is, cons you know, it are really quite radical and are quite distressed by it and really do see this as an opportunity for radicalism. But if they don't, sp you know, uh, speak out, they'll all sink together. Um, all we could do standing on the sidelines or anybody here as members of the Labour Party is keep sending up that message. Uh, I think it's um, very difficult to change Gordon Brown. I think that he has very, very set views of what can be done and what can't. And I think um, he, like Tony Blair, deeply scarred by the 18 years out of power. They are men of 1992 forged in 1992, and they have never caught up with it. Even in 97, I think large numbers of the people who voted, probably most of the people who voted Labour in 97, were well ahead of where Labour was and were hoping for something more radical then. So I can't pretend to be optimistic that Labour is going to save itself. It's got a year. It could, I think. Uh, will it? I have my doubts. Will the, will the Conservatives do any better? Probably. Well, we don't really know what the Conservatives stand for. I mean, there's no doubt that they are transformed greatly in terms of, mm. of how they sound and what they talk about and what they'd like to do. And I think, to some extent, there is you know, a reasonable amount of good faith and talk to a number of them, you know, David Cameron and the others, that all other things being equal, they would like to be nicer and better and to be more socially concerned than Conservative parties have been governments have been in the past but when it comes down to it what will matter in the end is whether they're willing to put the money into these social programs that on the whole they do approve of and yet even last week there was Ken Clark who you might expect to be on the more radical edge saying not we must bring forward more spending but saying we must bring forward the planned cuts and if they're even saying that now while out of power uh, and if they're going to win an election on the basis of we can cut the national debt quicker than the other lot can, we're in for a very tough time because whoever wins, it's going to be very tough for public spending. But if they win on a ticket of we'll cut public spending more than the others, I think that's quite scary. Right. I think there's a gentleman here. Yeah, the young chap there. Yeah. Could uh, the other microphone come over here so I can, on the left, yes. So we can, yeah, please, sir. Um, my name's Joshua Genner. I work for the Labour Party. Um, uh, it's funny you should talk about child poverty. Recently, um, I heard uh, James Pennell say, uh, speaking about how brave it was that the government had been tackling child poverty, and that it was so brave because it was not a popular issue. And I was thinking, uh, surely the brave thing to do is to fight to make it an issue, obviously. 
Um, and so, and you speak about uh, the fact that, that Labor, uh, New Labor was a politics of certainty, and, and it has been said that what we've been left with after New Labor did everything it could do is all the things that New Labor can't do. Uh, and you say you're not optimistic about people fighting the, these, these tough battles. So, so if you don't think it's going to happen, uh, do you really think we're going to have to wait for a new generation of Labor politicians, or is there anything we can do to uh, catalyse the process? Wait till 2050. I don't know. It's my natural uh, inclination is to be optimistic and to look for good signs. I think it will make a huge difference whether Labour just loses or whether Labour crashes out in the next election. If it just loses and it has a chance to get back at the following, the following election, which it might because whoever wins next time is going to have a hell of a time uh, running the country, not very en enviable. There are a lot of people there and a lot of them in the Cabinet too with far more radical intent. I would say this is the Miliband lecture, both the Milibands for a start um, are way out ahead of anywhere where Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson and people are in terms of what they'd like to do. Um, you know, will they forge uh, a, a new way forward with a new party ready to come in next time? It's a possibility. Uh, for the time being, we ought to try and think about saving the party now from going down, but I'm less enthusiastic about less optimistic about that. Perhaps you... Well, I mean, I would say, hopefully not too, neg to not too negatively. Yeah, yeah. Get up to the microphone, David. Yeah, yeah thanks. <clears throat> Look at the work done by colleagues here at the Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion on attitudes. Um, there is a large traditional body of English individualist attitude which doesn't believe uh, in the volume of poverty which can be objectively demonstrated, which certainly doesn't believe in the deservingness of poor families, even when confronted with the facts. And this is not the bankers, this is, you know, look at the data from British social attitudes each year. Uh, people can be persuaded, you're absolutely right, uh, through long deliberation by the patient presentation of facts. But given the qualities of our national conversation, uh, tainted uh, as it is by the uh, right of centre press, it is extremely difficult uh, to, to make the case. I'm sure you're absolutely right, more could be done. And as Polly said earlier, had the, government, the Blair Brown government come to power in 97 with an intention to address uh, the deformations of, of mainstream public opinion, change might have occurred. It's clearly too late for that now. Okay, the downstairs, there's a gentleman at the back here. Does anybody from upstairs please throw your hand up so I can bring you up? Good, I've got two up there as well. The gentleman there first, Hi. please. Uh, my name is Bala, I'm postdoctoral fellow at UCL. Um, just wondering, you say the greed is with this small group of people in investment banking, but even regular average middle-income people invest in iSafe, people w do want to have more returns for their money, so it's greed is inherent in human nature. So how are we, we going to address this? You're quite right. No, um, Greek, Greek, it, pe people will take what they can unless they are regulated or shamed or the culture tells them not to. In that sense, I don't think Sir Fred Goodwin is personally to blame he is the product of his environment, as I wrote the other day, just as, just as surely as, uh, as you know, someone brought up in gang culture on a very tough estate is a product of, 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 of his culture. I think that uh, that's what the state is for, in a sense, to frame laws that constrain greed, encourage the better 
element of human nature and restrain the worser element. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's impossible to do, uh, to return to a sense of some kind of proportionality between what you can expect to get at the top as a ratio of the bottom and to explain it publicly and to say, well, what do we, what do we think? Let's have a discussion. What do we think you can say to the voters? Do you think it should be, you know, 10 times, 20 times? What, what, what's the rule of thumb here? And that's why I think having a pay commission that discussed these things, opened the debate, produced reports, or a royal commission, if you like, on, on, on remuneration after all of this uh, would be very welcome because there's been so little discussion of it and so, you know, really for 20 years now, I mean, ever since the unions really disappeared from the political horizon. There's been so little public discourse about what people are paid, let alone what they should be paid. I suppose that we, we, we wrote the book perhaps fearful that the appetite for the moral argument about greed wasn't very great for uh, obvious reasons and really pitched our argument on functional grounds that inequality is dysfunctional that the behavior of corporate boards, not just in the financial sector in recent times, has been dysfunctional. Uh, the behavior of the people who invested in iSave wasn't dysfunctional. It turned out that they made a, a, a mistake because of the lack of security in their deposits. But it's a different kind of thing from the dysfunctionality of the pattern of high rewards that have been evident, as I say, not just in the banking sector, um, but I, I really do think it, it's, it's, a, it's much stronger ground because of the vagaries of politics uh, to make an argument about the, rational, the irrationality of the pattern of high rewards we've seen in recent years rather than make a moral appeal which clearly will only ever convince uh, a limited number of people. Thanks. We've got a gentleman out here, please. Um, I was a bit sorry you didn't perhaps mention unemployment benefit in your list of things to do because I feel that gets left out of a lot of the current political response to the oppression particularly. And, you know, it was moving and painful to hear how the professors at the LSE are feeling undervalued. But, uh, I'm sure you look moved, I must say. Oh, I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that's, that's a massive feature. And obviously there's another anxiety about the rise of the, the far right, which feeds exactly on those people who aren't in a low-paid job, they're just in no job at all. No, you're quite right, and we do mention it in the book because uh, the government has emphasized child poverty because child poverty is the element that gets most public support. I mean, pensions and pensioners and children are the easier things to do, and so its main targets and its main successes have been with poor children and poor pensioners. Uh, it's done it's actually very well for poor pensioners for the first time ever, if you're old, you're less likely to be poor than if you're not old, which is quite an achievement due to pension credits. But as you know, we do say in the book, the people left behind are those whose children are, are older or haven't got children and are on any kind of benefit, unemployment or, or incapacity. And they have been badly left behind. They are actually in real terms worse off, not just they haven't kept up, they're actually in real terms worse off. It partly explains the figures that I gave at the beginning about the bottom third having got worse off is the numbers of, of adults who aren't entitled to credits of any kind and who have been utterly left behind on the grounds that they are, you know, the sturdy beggars and the undeserving poor, and that remains the attitude. That uh, if you haven't got a job, or in, in recent times, it'll change again now, uh, if you haven't got a job, uh, then you must be lazy and, and a scrounger. 
And the government has more or less bought into that in a way that I think has been pretty bad. I think this is going to change now because I think as large numbers of people who know nothing about the benefit system try and live on £60.50 a week, the shock is going to be so profound mm. that there really will be quite a lot of outrage about it. And I think that the rate of uh, unemployment pay will have to rise. Uh, it's just not sustainable. You cannot live on it. I tried. You cannot live on that. Um, and, uh, you, you know, not without very good family and friends to, to help support you. And um, I think that this government and the next will have, to, will have to come under huge pressure. I also think that attitudes change towards the unemployed quite rapidly. Times of all of the opinion surveys show the moment unemployment rises, people become much more sympathetic. They know somebody who knows somebody. They've seen people in their work. They've got members of their family. Uh, and they identify quite strongly with people who've lost jobs through no fault of their own, whereas in other times it is those people's fault. What about scapegoating British jobs for British workers? I mean, isn't there, you know, the, the debate yeah. won't go in the progressive direction you wanted to. We could easily go into kind of finding somebody just below you who's even in worse position. Yes, I mean, I think we've, we've, we've seen a flavour of that. I mean, at least the unions are... Um, very much against the scapegoating of foreign workers. But of course, the BNP then moves into the gap. Uh, if, if the trade unions move too far away from where the opinions of their members are, that can be quite dangerous too and open up to something worse. Um, I think that there may be a lot more pressure on foreign uh, workers uh, to go home uh, and a great deal more, more of that if uh, times really are as bad as some predict. Okay, I've got a gentleman down here in the blue shirt, please. I'd uh, just like to pick you up on a comment you made about corporation tax and the chasing down, downwards of it. Um, we live in a, a globalized world where it's very easy for corporations to up sticks and move to other jurisdictions. That obviously has its um, stresses and pressures puts on, put on individual employees who work for those organizations and the exchequer. Given at the European level, which I, th I think you alluded to as a solution to it, that uh, taxation remains a ve uh, vetoed and there's no common taxation policy, nor does there seem any prospect of uh, member countries harmonizing taxation. How do you see um, that being addressed at the European level? Mm. Well, the and, and sorry, just a, as, a, as an addition, taxation has to come from somewhere. If yeah. we chase corporation tax through the floor, the burden will, uh, and, and a, uh, a further burden will be placed on individual tax taxpayers. Yes, indeed, and most people feel quite strongly that corporations should pay their fair share. And we've seen corporation tax drop quite significantly in the last decade. Most important of all, this first step is to harmonize the way that corporation tax is, uh, the, the way that it's levied, which at the moment isn't harmonized throughout Europe. The second more difficult question is whether you can actually harmonize the rate. I think you could bring in certain rules that would stop people pretending to move to Dublin uh, or anywhere else by saying a company it can only be deemed to have moved if its uh, board and directors actually live in the Cayman Islands or wherever they pur purport to be based and domiciled and most of their work uh, and, and you can actually prove that most of the work that they carried out actually happens in the place that they purport to be their tax base. Mm. Uh, so then you needn't necessarily harmonize the rates but at least you make it a great deal more difficult to pretend to operate from somewhere that you don't. 
Well, we, we already have domicile. You'd ha they'd have to be domiciled in the Cabins if they wanted to say, uh, or, or in Dublin, if you wanted to say, like WPP, we've moved to Dublin. Uh, actually, Sir Martin Sorrell has not moved to Dublin, and his family has not moved to Dublin. Uh, you know, there are fairly clear rules about domicile which uh, already exist for income tax purposes, and I think I would simply apply them to the board and the directors of a company and say, fine, if you're all moving. And, and also, I mean, you could say a proportion of your business must take place in that country. I don't know quite how you do that, but I think internationally you could say there must at least be some business there, Caymans or wherever, um, and you could produce quite strong disincentives for this shopping around and racing to the bottom. Uh, there's a gentleman up the top there, yeah, please, sir. Kieran Levitt. Speak right into it yeah, at the top. I'm sure everybody would agree with David that, or with all of you, that executive pay has become, well, rather more than irrational. It's become downright insane. It's hardly in the interests of the shareholders of these companies, or of Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, that uh, Fred Goodwin should be rewarded in the way that he has for making the appalling mistakes that he has. One of the problems is that executives get bonuses when things go, go well, but they don't suffer any loss when things go badly wrong. So it seems to me that the problem is fundamentally one of corporate governance, and I don't know that a pay commission will solve that. I mean, this is something on which I would have thought you could get agreement across the political spectrum that um, the, 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 the shareholders' interests are not being represented well in all of this. It's not just unfair, it's downright stupid. Interestingly, um, in Germany, as we speak, um, there is a, a viable proposal uh, before the Bundestag which would give shareholders a legal right to challenge uh, excess payments, excess defined uh, in a, a rolling uh, but statutorily uh, sound way. Um, I suppose... I think that's a, very, that's a very good measure, which we could quite, use, quite possibly study and perhaps introduce here. However, it would require the corporate body of shareholders and the institutions that represent them, pension funds and so on, to be that bit more active and involved in the governance of the companies that they ostensibly own than they seem to have wanted to be in recent years. And I suppose pessimistically, sometimes one seems to see at the heart of uh, the private enterprise capitalist system... Uh, this hall where the corporate entities are simply not run in the interests of the owners and the owners uh, take it on the chin and they don't protest and you know as we describe in the book uh, this rather dispiriting visit to the annual general meeting of a, uh, a PLC which ought to have been an occasion for the assertion um, even if symbolically by the the owners of their rights against these manager directors who were using quite literally the company as a cash cow and paying themselves huge, you use the word insane, others might say obscene sums um, to often, we now see, perpetrate failure. So I think there are technical measures that could be adopted. I think Germany is well worth watching to see what they're doing and and you may, you may be right. It's one thing that the Conservatives, Liberal Democrats, and Labour could potentially come together on whoever's in executive power. Though so I see them, no chance of them coming together on anything, whatever, in the present climate. It seems to me the less there's any real disagreement, the more determined they are to produce synthetic disagreements. 
There's a gentleman in a blue shirt there. Thank you. There's a quite widely held perception in the scruffy state staff room in which I work that one of the reasons that Labour politicians challenge the corporate world so weakly is that they are, one way or another, remunerated by that world and that in some ways, I don't know how many, I'd be interested in your opinion, people in, Oberhorn's phrase, the political class have been corrupted by protracted exposure to capital. I know that's not new, by the way, but it's the level that interests me. No, I think that's true. Not perhaps in the straightforward, obvious sense of sort of cash in hand, but around the edges. I think that certainly party funding has been deeply corrupting. It has meant that they have had to rub shoulders with these people socially in ways that they might not have necessarily bothered to do otherwise. And in the process, sort of distinctions between friends, business relationships, courting them, needing to court them, needing them to take, you know, 10,000 a night plate dinners, gala dinners, to raise money for parties. It's just something that Labour should have done on day one. But of course, it dared not because of its own union funding base and was corrupted in that sense. In terms of personal corruption, yes, around the edges a bit, but I don't think it's the prime motivator for this. I do think the fact that ministers go straight from the Department of Defence into the defence industry, straight from the Department of Health into the health industry, Alan Milburn straight into the health industry, though Pepsi-Cola as well, which you could call the anti-health industry. And I think that connection, you know, is much too close and we should go to much stricter rules with a much longer period of purda before they are allowed to do that. And certainly perhaps not while their government is still in power should they be allowed to do that. But I don't think the personal corruption, it's very easy to personalise it, is the main reason. I think the political fear and the sheer power, these people march into number 10 and number 11 and say, right, we're the masters of the universe. We have the wealth of the country in our hands. We are the only really successful thing about Britain. This is how this discourse has gone in the last 10 years. You blow a chill across our business and like a flock of starlings, we'll all be off or they'll all be off. They may say not us personally, but all of the people who helped to make this possible will be gone to Mumbai, Dubai, Shanghai. They'll be gone. And it's very scary. And particularly perhaps if you're Labour and you don't really feel that you know that world terribly well and you fear they might be right or you're not sure enough, even if there's a 50% chance that they're right, that you might just do that one thing, that one extra bit of taxation, whatever it is, that suddenly means everybody's gone and they've gone back to New York or they've gone to Frankfurt, but it's built up. I mean, they've been wrong about this, serially wrong, but intimidated. These people are very scary mm. and very powerful. And uh, I think that's more important than the sort of personal corruption, money in the pocket stuff. Do you think Ken Livingstone was, uh, was uh, intimidated? Because he didn't seem to be strongly anti-city, as I remember very well, Polly. Yes, I think that he fell for it too. You know, London is the greatest world capital city and uh, these are our wealth creators. And, you know, if you're mayor of London, it's 
quite difficult not mm. to turn around and say I'm mayor of London but not of the city of London, which mm. is technically the case. Mm. Mm. But I think, I mean, if I may add, just yeah. to underline Polly's point, I think as important, more important than any possibility of, of personal uh, uh, corruption, uh, the pursuit of pelf of corporate uh, reward, is a kind of intellectual weakness which is systemic uh, in the, the thinking of the Labour Party well back in the 20th century. Um, you can go back to the 1920s, 1930s and see Labour. One of the reasons for the tragedy of Labour in 1930-31 was because of a, a failure of understanding about the nature of the private economy and the possibilities of state action uh, in relationship to it. And I think, and I, you know, we're in an academic institution now, one of the great opportunities, whatever might happen in terms of political fortunes next year, could be a radical rethinking of the capacity of a left of centre government relative to mm. private economic power were uh, Labour, assuming it loses next year, to take office again. But that will depend very much upon students, postgraduates and professors at institutions such as this lending their shoulders to the wheel of intellectual recuperation, giving Labour ministers, were they to come to power again, the the, where, the mental wherewithal to withstand these, mm. these pressures, these personal pressures, which inevitably they would come under. Mm. Now, I think that's a very important point. They really need the ammunition. We need now a ferment of ideas about how, to, how we could reshape things before it settles back to how it was. Right. Uh, there's a lady here, please. Hi. Yeah, um, hi. Elena Bezus from UCL. I wanted to go back to the first issue raised uh, on the uh, public sector and the role of the public sector and surely the devaluation of the public sector is connected to the value and role assigned to the private sector as a provider of social services in this country in the last uh, 20 years maybe. And uh, the country, the Nordic countries, but France and Germany as well, uh, that you mentioned, uh, uh, David, are countries where the public, the, the, the public sector is, as a provider of services like health, uh, education and housing is not marginalized and is not providing services only for the margin, the poorest margin of the population. And certainly this has, an in, has a connection with the inequalities that are in Britain and that are not in other European countries, maybe more than the role of the greed in that sentence. I think that the public sector and redefining the public sector as a provider of services for all has an important role in this country in reducing inequalities. And maybe let's forget about greed for a while. Perhaps something also on schools, private schools, independent yes. schools. Yes. I mean, what's interesting in a way is at a yeah. time of huge growth of wealth uh, for some, there hasn't been a great growth in either private health or in private education. Actually, satisfaction with both the state sector has risen. Uh, you might have expected many more people to take out, uh, you know, Bupa health insurance and so on. Hasn't happened. In fact, it declined rather rapidly as waiting lists fell in the health service. So uh, the uh, private health sector has, has been really struggling. So if even in a great boom time you haven't seen that expansion, I'm fairly confident that public confidence in the, in, in the public sector is, is quite strong. I mean, there's a passionate feeling in favor of the health service. Mrs. Thatcher never dared touch it. 
and are on schools. In fact, most people, most of the time, are very satisfied with their local schools. One of the problems is that the places where schools are most problematic tend to be the centre of the big cities, and particularly the centre of London, where you have very rich people who send their children in large numbers to private schools, so that Kensington and Chelsea, 40% of the children in private schools, compared to a national average of 6% six to 7%, to, or maybe by now 7%. Um, and this throws the whole thing so badly out of kilter where you then just have poor people left in the schools. And that colours the perception, because these are the chattering classes and the, the people who, mm. who you know, live and work in Westminster and write about life, by what they see going on in the centre of London. But in fact, statistically, all the surveys show most people are really rather satisfied with their schools and think they're really rather good. My own school is good, I'm lucky. I understand the education system's going to pop, is what they say, because what they read is education's a disaster. But actually, asked about their own children's schooling, they're pretty positive, and pretty positive about their own health services too. But again, tend to say, oh, but I understand the National Health Service elsewhere is falling apart. And uh, that's a problem of uh, the wicked media again, I'm afraid. Sorry, you can look across the Western OECD world and find a fairly strong correlation between the size of government, that's to say government expenditure relative to GDP, and many measures of well-being, with the outlier exception of uh, Japan, which, where government is relatively small, but uh, equality is, is large. What you can't so readily do is find an easy uh, relationship between how public services are provided, that's to say where the boundary between contracted and directly provided services lies, and these indices of uh, well-being. Uh, in France, for example, you traditionally have had large utilities provided privately, water being a good example, and the health service in France is a, a weird mixture of uh, insurance, mutuality, <coughs> the state, and the, the private sector. Um, what other countries seem to have, though, in, elsewhere in Europe that we in the United Kingdom don't seem to have is a strong idea of the state. Paradoxically, even in federal Germany, where you have large divisions of, uh, between federal government and the lender and local government beneath them, the idea of the state is very strong. Similarly in Scandinavia, and I think again that there's a sort of in traditional intellectual disregard of the pub, def to define the public in a robust way, which may be part of the explanation for why things appear to be so out of kilter here. There's a lady there, yeah, please. Yeah, I had a question about um, following the bailout of the banks, um, about the intervention that we can, or potential intervention that we can then take within banks to, to influence more, um, more favourable policy for the, the low and middle income um, families that are going to really feel the brunt of the crisis. Um, for example, I've heard it quoted that Northern Rock um, actually undertakes the highest number of repossession orders um, out of all the banks. And, and just how far really can we go with the intervention from greater regulation, which I hope will be undertaken, to more positive policies um, or positive loan schemes for um, poor and middle income families to, to really restart? Well, there are uh, the repossession schemes have been rather, uh, the, and the, the, the preventing repossession schemes have been slow to get off the ground, but are gradually coming in. They won't help everybody. Um, there isn't enough money in the pot to help everybody. Uh, they'll only prevent it for, say, two years. So if you're out of work after two years, 
uh, you're still likely to lose your house, but it gives you time mm. to have a bit of a breather, to get back on your feet and see if you can get back to a reasonable enough earning, uh, earnings level to keep, stay in the house you're in. I think it's very difficult to keep everybody in the house that they're in in a, very, in, in, in a falling market. Um, and that's why people are desperate, the, the government is desperate to try and shore up the house price market, but that in itself has its problems because mm. house prices were too high anyway. We still only got back to, to uh, 2006 levels, mm. and in 2006 they were insanely high. So the government is kind of caught in a trap where it's got to keep doing exactly what caused the problem, which is creating a bubble out of house prices. Mm. And I think that's a very tricky technical question. Um, but, I mean, if they can save as many people as possible for repossession for the time being, that'll be, that'll be a help. They need to do a huge house building program. Uh, will there be money for that? We don't really know yet. Um, well, um, this, you, this is where housing, housing is interesting. I'm sorry, but arguably, uh, owner occupation expanded too much. And in, so repossession, uh, cr cruel as it is, and, and there are ways of mitigating it, might be, in principle, a way of reducing what is an overexpanded owner-occupied sector, provided, as Polly rightly says, social housing were to expand to provide opportunities for people to rent affordably. Um, you don't necessarily, however, need to build uh, new dwellings to secure that. I mean, we do have a tremendous mismatch because of the operations of uh, the peculiar uh, British uh, housing system between numbers of household units and uh, available uh, property. There is a physical space to accommodate many, many more people in the stock that we've got, both in the social sector and in our occupation, but it would require much more intervention by local authorities, by government in private, what's deemed to be private housing than we've, we've perhaps ever seen to secure a better match of the available space and the demanding uh, households. There's a gentleman at the back there, please. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, when you start to talk about when you uh, start to talk about inequality, you're very open, sadly, to the accusation that you're preaching the politics of envy. So I want to get a stronger grip on why inequality is a bad thing. Now, would David and Polly agree with me that one reason inequality is a bad thing is because it's indicative of an increase in the concentration of control over capital? And that's bad for two reasons. It's economically inefficient. It means we as a society are placing bigger and bigger bets on a group of people who may not turn out to be as talented as they think they are. And the other reason it's a bad thing is because the other side of the coin to the increase in concentration of control of capital is the exclusion of the great majority of the population from control over capital. And it's surely no accident that the era of exploding inequality has also been an era when there's been a greater sense aboard of helplessness with regard to our ability to shape our own lives and the life of our society. Okay, if that view Can is I take that as your question? Because so there's quite well, a lot of other people well, that come I was in. just going to suggest, well, I'll just wind up very quickly. Very quickly say, yeah, would thanks. David and Polly uh, recommend uh, trade union re representatives sitting on remuneration boards. Thanks very much. I'm going to take two or three because quite a lot of hands have gone up. There's a gentleman here at the back. 
Yeah, 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 it's the same. I, yeah. I, just, I just want to point out that, as you all know, we're, we're working in... Um, use the mic, use the mic. We're working in international capital markets and a globalised economy. And I just wondered if the panel think it would help if um, Labour was actually to um, organise globally in a much stronger way, when we could start with, for example, uh, a, a much more high-profile trade union equivalent of um, Davos. Trade union equivalent of Davos. That's, that's the place that nobody wanted to be seen this January, wasn't it? <laughs> I remember, yeah. And uh, there's, there's a lady here. Yeah, please. You've had your hand up a long time. Um, I have two slightly unrelated questions. The first is I'm just interested to know in your focus groups, um, did any of the bankers justify their high earnings by right. philanthropy? And did you have any shining examples of um, high-end earners who have sort of taken it upon themselves to redistribute their own incomes and champion social projects of their own? Um, my second question is that do you think that the, the outrage that has been generated recently over bonuses and executive pay is partly, um, well, mostly underlying that is actually lack of confidence that people, the low earners, could not actually reach that position themselves and that people don't actually object to inequality in itself, but m mostly because, you know, there's only a certain type of people who, who are actually earning those sums. Okay, I know this is a bit of a... But there's one last question from the lady here at the back. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? Uh, I did, yeah. Sorry, I, I missed you earlier on, but I wanted to bring you back in. Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, my name is Angelica, and uh, I am a, um, an immigrant uh, living in the UK. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually just wanted to make a few remarks. Well, uh, just, just one. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, you mentioned you, you uh, expressed your desire to increase um, 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 influence of, of the state, and I... And uh, uh, coming from Germany, where the state has a lot of influence and, and, is, uh, and the, most, the h most highly regarded jobs are in government, yeah. uh, I think this is actually not going to work, and I, and I hope that the English are not going to lose their heads. Because, um, <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, the statistics have shown that despite of universities being for free in Germany, for, for example, um, the uh, meritocracy ha hasn't improved, really. Okay. I think that's a good point. Well, can we just stick on that one? Because I'm, I'm yeah. conscious of the fact that okay, we're coming I'll right to the end. Thank you very much. I'll for take that. a couple. There's I'll a number there. And we're yeah. Well, on the state, I think we might just disagree, and perhaps it depends on what one's background is. But it seems to me that where we are at the moment, the lesson we've learned is that the state is there when everything else fails. It is absolutely essential. When it comes to the point where even these bankers in the, our focus groups who utterly rejected the need for the state in almost anything at all are themselves the biggest beneficiaries mm -hmm. and have caused outrage to taxpayers that such vast sums of money have to be shoveled in to pay for their bad gambling debts. It seems to me that this is the moment for the rehabilitation of the state rather than the, mo than the moment for rejecting the importance of the state. Uh, you know, when all else fails, that's what's there. That is the best representation of our collective selves. Paying your taxes is the most communitarian thing you ever do. It's not a burden. Uh, the things that you need and want most in life, that you value most in life, your health, your children's education, the parks, the streets, safety, security, these are things we can't buy for ourselves that we can only buy communally and the state is a reflection of that commonality. And I think we have to return to a sense of those high values instead of constantly allowing the sort of paranoia, I must say, of some of the dottier libertarians 
that the state is out to get us and it's spying on us all the time and it's got our names on computers and it's, uh, you know, it, there's a certain craziness around about the state. Uh, and I think it's time that at least we pull a bit on the other end of the rope and reassert its very precious values, not just as a necessity, but as a, as a positive expression of the best of us. Um, philanthropy, yes, of course they said philanthropy. If you tax us more, we won't give, a, give so much. But as we have a chapter on it in our book, um, uh, they uh, don't give very much anyway. They give much less of their income proportionately than people lower down the scale. The richer you are, the smaller proportion you give of your income. Uh, and uh, it's the first thing to go in the, this current crisis, if you talk to the charities, the first thing that people, that, that richer people strike off is their donations and sponsorships. Great problem for charity, just as well we have a welfare state and not what they're suggesting, which is a philanthropic state, where um, if you didn't have tax, they would step in instead. Well, they might sometimes now and then when they felt about, like it, which doesn't really provide much of a substitute. And then, of course, a world without philanthropy would be very depressing and dark. It's very important as an adjunct and as another expression of goodwill, but it's no kind of substitute. I think I'll leave you to the trade unions and the global well, economy. Well, uh, politics of envy, I have to say, after leaving a couple of these focus groups, envy was the one thing we just didn't feel, um, a sense of uh, <laughs> deep uh, alienation from uh, these people, however well off they were, uh, not envious at all. Um, you make a very good point. Um, I think before you got as far as putting uh, trade union people on remuneration committees, you would have to ask trade unions to pay much more attention to the pattern of rewards within companies. Um, a few years ago, we did some work on, on pay, and, uh, thought about writing a book about it, but one of the reasons we didn't was because we found it incredibly hard to interest people in the distribution of rewards within organizations. And unions are often the worst. They will fight often for a group who are members of the union, but will pay very little attention to what's the rationale for payment perhaps further up the line. And you'll get formally adopted in organizations, public as well as private sector, which say performance related. But nobody but nobody pays much attention to what the nature of the performance is. And what happens is you get this doctrine of individual leader reward where huge amounts are paid to individuals when, in fact, their performance is entirely collective. That's to say it rests upon teams of people working with them who are then excluded from the remuneration. So I think a lot more attention to the principles or the lack of principles underlying remuneration. And yes, at the end of that process, um, much more transparency in uh, corporate remuneration and trade unions could play a, a valuable role there. Okay, I'll uh, draw the proceedings to a conclusion. I should point out again that this was part of the uh, series organized by the Ralph Miliband program. I should also remind some of you who Ralph Miliband was. He was indeed a professor uh, here in the government department at the London School of Economics, uh, a Marxist and certainly very much committed uh, to social progress, uh, the eradication of poverty and inequality. I'm not saying that everybody today at the LSE is like Ralph. Fortunately or unfortunately, I have my own opinions about that, as many people in this audience may know. But nonetheless, I think it does at least say something about the school and hopefully where the school will continue to go. I'd also point out, as I said at the very beginning, you know, how much the school, I'm not going to say we're the most egalitarian institution in the world. After all, we teach some of, its, some of the richest people in the world, as I'm often reminded. 
Uh, but nonetheless, this evening, five public lectures and many on some of the wider issues to do with world politics in the Middle East, on aid and many other things. Um, I'd also remind you again about the book, which actually has one of some of the greatest puffs I've ever seen. One I will actually re re read out here, Polly. Unjust reward should be compulsory reading for anyone on £162,000 and over. <laughs> and that comes from the Independent on Sunday. And I'm not quite sure what the significance of the 162000 is, but that's certainly not what LSE professors are, by the way, comrade upstairs there. Anyway, um, it's a great book. It's been a great presentation this evening. We've asked some great questions. Thank you very much, but particular thanks to Polly and to David for a great contribution this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.